you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. That is no country for old men. The young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song, the salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas, fish, flesh or fowl, commend all summer long. Whatever is begotten, born and dies, caught in that sensual music, all neglect. Monuments of unaging intellect. An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick, unless soul clap its hands and sing and louder sing. For every tatter in its mortal dress, nor is there singing school, but studying monuments of its own magnificence. And therefore, I have sailed the seas and come to the holy city of Byzantium. You are listening to Sailing to Byzantium by Yates. And now we move on to today's episode of AIAD Healthcare, where Andreas Meyer will talk about his research on known operator learning and how that can be connected in terms of medical image reconstruction as well as segmentation and many other related medical imaging problems where deep learning can benefit from the age-old knowledge of the methods that has been developed before. Welcome everyone to the third season of the podcast AI Ready Healthcare. We are here in Darmstadt quite early in the morning. It's now around 8.15. I'm Anirvan with my co-host Henry here. We are really uh, going to be recording a wonderful episode with Professor Andreas Meyer. Incidentally, we are recording this episode one week after the Mikai. So we still have a lot of memories from the Mikai, and we'll probably discuss some of it during during our podcast. So about our main guest, Professor Andreas Meyer. Andreas is a professor from the Friedrich Alexander University of Nuremberg, Germany. He leads the pattern recognition lab there and has broad interests on several aspects where uh, pattern recognition can be helpful. 
we will mainly be focusing on the medical imaging part, but we will also hear from him the non-medical imaging side of his research. In particular, when we talk about the medical imaging and the Mikai society in general, it has both the MIC side, the medical imaging computing, and the Kai side, and Andreas is involved in all of these. So I'm really, really uh, looking forward to hear from Andreas all about his research. But And last but, but not the least, he, Andreas is probably one of the most active members of the Mikai Society within the social media circles, both in Twitter and LinkedIn. So that's really wonderful to also popularize the scientific work he is doing to the more broader audience. So I'm really excited to hear from you, Andreas, and welcome to the, to the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation and thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a great pleasure to have you here today. So um, let me maybe first start with the very first question of today's session, because this is our tradition in AI Ready Healthcare podcast. So can you please tell us a bit about how you became the researcher that you currently are? Uh, that's a very good question. How did I became, how did I become what I'm right now? So I can tell you that I was always interested in, in computer science and in particular then also in machine learning and pattern recognition. So this is why I specialized in this during my studies. And I actually started with doing speech recognition. And we started off with projects using speech recognition in medical kind of applications. So we were using the automatic speech recognition to assess the intelligibility of a speaker. So we did that already 15 years ago. And uh, turns out that it actually works quite well. And you can this way somehow create a tool that objectively evaluates how well a person can be understood. And this is kind of a nice tool for speech therapy if you have to evaluate you know, different possible therapies. And of course, all of them treat the main reason for the treatment. Let's say you have a tumor after that the tumor is gone, but which of the therapies is best for speech preservation? So we looked into these things and then I completed my PhD and moved on. So I got an offer from, from Stanford University to work in actually medical imaging. So at that point, I switched from medical speech processing to medical imaging. So essentially, I started reading the first books on CT when I actually took the plane and flew over to Stanford. So it was always related with medical, but then more on the imaging side. I had a very good time there. We So this was with Rebecca Farrick and her group. She, she does a lot of interventional imaging. So this is also where the Kai side comes in. She's trained in physics. So this was also very good for me to also get in touch more with the, the with the fundaments and the, the physics of the actual imaging process. So I learned a lot with her. Then it was quite interesting because you may know that Siemens Healthineers is the has the main facilities and the main offices here actually in Allen. And when I was in California working in Silicon Valley, when we ran the first time into Siemens, <laughs> they asked me where you're from. I said, oh, well, I'm from Erlang. I said, why don't we know you? <laughs> I just started doing medical imaging here. And yeah, well, the cooperation was quite good. And uh, only shortly after these meetings, I found myself as an innovation manager working for Siemens Healthineers. And I spent like one and a half years with the company. It was very good to also see the industrial side and how to come from research ideas actually to products that are then used 
with the patient because you, of course, you need a medical device in order to be able to bring the new insights to your patient. So that's very useful. And that's also why I like a lot working with companies and really transferring the research ideas into medical products. Yeah. And shortly after that, so in, in the year 2002, then I joined again FAU and became first a, a group lead for image reconstruction at, again, the Pattern Recognition Lab. And later on in 2015, I became the head of the lab, which I'm running since then. So yeah, it was a very interesting experience. I can't tell you that I ever planned to take over the lab that I actually did my, my study thesis and my diploma thesis. So there's a lot of coincidence in my career. But then again, I did all the choices following my, my passion, my heart, doing the research that I like. And so I still like all the projects that I'm involved in today. Wonderful. That's that's really a summary of, I guess, a two decade or more longer journey across continents. And it, we also learned even sometimes to really make collaborations with your neighbors, you have to cross the pond and come back. And that, <laughs> that's something for our young researchers to know that it's not always the geography that ensures a proper collaboration. There are many things, many factors that have to come together. So now you said you basically did your bachelor's, master's, PhD, and then came back and leading or chairing basically currently the department. And you have seen many research trends, what we, would, we can call the what is a hot research topic that has changed over the years. And especially towards the later part, I guess you have also seen the much rise of deep learning in medical imaging. Can you walk us through a little bit about your personal experience of this changing technology? Um, I can tell you that, of course, coming from the pattern recognition lab and doing mainly machine learning, we've always been interested in applying mm -hmm. like not just deep learning and neural networks, but also many other machine learning techniques and medical imaging. So I found that very interesting and, uh, to be honest, in the beginning, also surprising how this whole thing takes off and that we really advanced the field quite a bit. So I enjoyed that a lot. And then, of course, um, being from the Pattern Recognition Lab, we thought also of ideas how to bring in machine learning into not just image recognition or image analysis, but also in, you know, the signal processing part into the reconstruction and the image generation. And this also turned out to be quite interesting and um, picked up quite a bit. So, yeah, I think it's a very good fusion. So something that I always enjoyed doing. And of course, I think it's really a great idea. So um, how would you say does the uh, proximity to Siemens, although it was maybe a bit tricky in the very beginning, uh, I mean, as you said, they, uh, you didn't really have relations to those, but how would you say does that currently influence uh, your research? I would say it influences the, the applied part of the research. So I would say the the basics and the more fundamental things that we are doing is mostly things that we do at the university. And then we have to see whether it takes off and whether there's patient benefit. But if you think about the, the interventional applications and also if you think about image reconstruction, I mean, of course, you can sit in the lab and do simulations. But if you really want to go to the patient, 
having a partner that really is manufacturing the scanners and gives you access to, you know, all the details that you actually need to know in order to make it work. That's really a huge advantage. And we like working with them a lot. And it's not just that we get access to information, but it's also that the cooperation is very fruitful because if you manage to bring something together, then you can also see how this takes off and really becomes a medical product. So that's also very nice to not just develop some algorithm that is nice or some analysis method, but also see the transition into the clinic, into the bedside and how it's actually being involved there. And there I found Siemens is a very good partner. They are very open to research collaborations. And this is really quite nice to have them next door, of course, but it's a global player. So they cooperate with universities worldwide. So I think it could also be possible with, you know, being located at a different location. So still it's, I, I value the cooperation a lot. Mm, yes, that's actually very good to know because uh, usually we have only been talking about collaborations with the hospitals themselves or maybe other universities rather than industrial partners, which is also a very valuable thing to have. So maybe coming to my next question, maybe to your research in general, I think we've already mentioned that you have many research interests, like a, a whole zoo of different research interests. So can you maybe give us a very quick summary of all of your interests that you have? Well, uh, let's let's summarize it like that. So, of course, being in a pattern recognition lab allows you to collaborate with many, many different other disciplines. And we do a lot of interdisciplinary research. I would say that about 70% of what we're doing is related to medical, medical imaging, medical data processing. And then we still have like three other legs. One is like speech recognition, where we still work again with medical and speech pathologies and the, the assessment and therapy of speech and disorders. Then we have a little bit of computer vision, where we kind of work um, also with, you know, industry and uh, then a little bit into the direction of autonomous driving, but also object detection, tracking and so on. And lately... We started, this is also nice because FAU is a full university and we have a full humanities department. So we started working in digital humanities that is then also like the digitization of history. There's a very nice initiative called the European Time Machine Project. They are interested in digitizing more than 2000 years of European history. And of course, you need a lot of machine learning techniques for that because you need to categorize things. But you also need advanced scanning. So also the 3D scanning that we're doing in medical comes in handy. So if you look at historical books, many of them are written in iron gel ink and it contains iron particles. So if you take one of these books and put it into a good CT scanner, then you can actually read the ink without opening the book. So it's kind of a very interesting idea and it turned out to be, to be usable. And of course, you can also then access books that are probably already very heavily damaged and you may destroy them by opening them, but this way you can make them accessible again. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds quite exciting. In fact, if I remember correctly, I also seen quite a few uh, videos in the public domain around the European Time Machine project and your work of actually using CT to read these books without ever opening them. So that's really a wonderful way of going about 
bringing the city and machine learning methods that you have already developed over the years into something which is totally new. So just out of curiosity, so I guess in a group or in, in such a chair, the majority of the research as always is driven by the graduate students or the PhDs, uh, basically. So roughly how many PhDs do you currently lead or advise in your in your chair? Yeah, so actively working in the lab is approximately 50 PhD students and uh, the split is, um, as I just explained, I also find it super interesting because if, if you think about the book and uh, you think about the plane that cuts through the pages, we're actually using Alex Frangi's Wesselness filter to track the pages. So it's again a medic, medical method that comes into digital humanities. So Yeah, that's that's quite interesting. I mean, we will go into more details of Alex Frangi's Wesselness filter and how, how uh, that really is becoming, again, somewhat like how to say a res resurrection of that in the deep neural network era. So I guess we can then move on to the next part of our podcast. And that is about a paper that you published in 2019. Uh, so in the modern era, it is fair to say that it has aged well because it's now what, two years plus old. <laughs> and this is about something which is quite interesting. It's about learning with known operators. And what you have shown is basically how that particular approach of learning basically reduces the maximal error bound compared to the typical deep learning approach of approximating any function without having any prior knowledge. So this is really a very interesting uh, idea with lots of applications in the medical imaging domain. So if we have to take, uh, by the way, to all our uh, listeners, please go ahead and read the paper. A preprint is also available in Oxiv, so that's that's totally possible to read. I guess the first question will be if you can summarize the paper and maybe three takeaway main takeaway points of that paper. What would that be? Yeah, so we've been thinking about bringing together machine learning and uh, image reconstruction for some time. And then we figured that it's actually possible to directly embed the reconstruction operators into a deep network. And this way we can yeah, already know a lot of the parameters. So for example, we know the geometry of the system. We know how the rays are running. So we don't have to learn that and already embed it into the network architecture. And the nice thing is that is if you look at, uh, at, it, at the problem from a more theoretical perspective and look what happens if I embed like blocks that I already know that need to be part of the processing pipeline, then you can actually show that you reduce the maximum error bound of the training problem. So you're closer to the correct solution if you do that. And that also then implies that you need fewer training samples, you have fewer parameters. So it's actually not a very big surprise that if you embed knowledge that you already have, that the learning problem gets easier. So you could say you could also come up with this by intuition, but you know, we wanted to demonstrate that and really find the effect on the error bounds. And that's what we did in the first part of the paper. And then we started looking into applications. So one is image reconstruction, then 
The second thing we looked at is can we also embed heuristics like algorithms that we already know. It turns out that Frangi's lessonless filter is also fully differentiable, so it can also make it compatible with deep learning. And the last thing that we show is that you can also come up with new algorithms. When you know the math of the problem, you can essentially start with deriving the problem. And then you end up at a situation where it becomes hard to invert and you don't know exactly how a certain inverse is, but you want it to be efficient. And then you can put in like postulates about the inversion and train the system. And it turns out that this led to a new algorithm that hasn't been uh, used before, but it's very efficient. So it's uh, fully convolutional. And uh, at the same time, it's based on the classical solution which means that we can train it with very, very few training samples. In fact, only synthetic samples. And then it use only ellipses and noise and so on. But it transfers, it generalizes in that state to anthropomorphic phantoms. So it has never seen a, a human brain, but it's still able to um, perform the rebinning accordingly with a very, very sharp image quality. So it's it's nice to see that. So with the known operators, we also get better with image general with generalization of learning problems. I think that sounds like uh, the perfect marriage between uh, neural networks and traditional approaches, which might also benefit the interpretability of deep learning approaches in general. So I was wondering, um, because you were already mentioning the differentiableness of the operators that are introduced, what uh, requirements do these operations have to fulfill so we can use them in combination with this framework? Yeah, essentially, you have to be able to compute a subgradient. So you need operations. If you have trouble getting the, the full gradient, it may be enough to find a gradient approximation that points into the right direction. And it turns out it's quite a big variety uh, of operations that can be integrated. So technically, all the differentiable rendering and that is very well used in computer vision today, is also part of these operations. Also things where you might say this might be troublesome, like a median filter can also be integrated, but then you need a linear approximation. But it's essentially very similar to what you're doing when you're computing the derivative for the max pooling. So you have to essentially store the index where the right information is coming from. So if you use tricks like that, you can really integrate a broad variety of problems. Of functions. And then with some functions, of course, you get into numerical instabilities if you are very close. So let's say you have the exponential function and so on, where you have the extreme positions, then of course, you want to make sure that you don't end up computing numerical problems in, in this domain. So there you need a couple of tricks, maybe a little bit of offset that you're not ending up in the singularity. But I think this is also something that has been used quite widely in, in the practical implementations. So if you think about the scaling and where you have to divide by a certain number, you just add a small offset just that you never end up in the singularity of the division. Um, so one quick question around, I guess the, the, the general idea is that, especially in the, in the medical context, if you are talking about these different, uh, uh, like, well, the, the, the major problem that we solve in medical context is always somehow segmentation, right? And in the recent years, we have been seeing a real uh, development of ideas where 
if you are just taking a neural network for doing the segmentation, it doesn't support the anatomical constraints. But we know that you can use statistical shape model or something of similar nature to bring that anatomical constraint into the segmentation. Do you see a possibility of actually using this framework of known operator learning with the similar idea that the anatomical constraint will still be there in, in the segmentation networks? Yeah, so I think it's possible. And in particular, there's very good work by Thomas Pock and, and Kerstin Hamannik, and they showed, well, for image reconstruction, something that they call variational networks. And the main idea is that they take an iterative formulation. And the problem with an iterative formulation is it's an energy minimization problem. So it cannot be cast like into an end-to-end -end fashion into a neural network. But what they essentially show is that by loop unrolling of the gradient descent problem. So you let's say you do 10 iterations of the gradient descent, then you end up with an end-to-end -end algorithm. So this way you can take the end-to-end, -end, uh, the iterative problem, the energy minimization problem, unroll it and plug it into an end-to-end -end network. And I think this is possible also with many classical segmentation methods. If you think about uh, like energy minimization problems and so on, they can be mapped also into neural network domain. And then you may construct hybrids where you have a part of the information coming of the anatomical constraints and others from end-to-end -end type unit kind of methods. So I think that's very well possible. And this brings in the anatomical knowledge. So yeah, this is very interesting because there are quite a lot of work going into that direction. I guess the motivation there is very clear, right? Especially if you are coming from a chi and you say that my segmentation dice is blah, 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 whatever. But the, if it doesn't look like the how the organ should look like, no surgeon will ever use it. That's not how it's going to happen. So there, I think this is really an interesting problem. The other question you mentioned at the start is how generalizable the entire learning process is. So you can even learn from synthetic data. So I guess this brings us the question towards the, the, the medical domain shift problem. And this is really a very challenging problem in the real world, especially if you are using something like cardiac MR, but also we have seen that in CT itself, we wrote a paper in this Mikai that where we, we are looking at this COVID CTs where it's supposed to work because it was trained with this very heterogeneous data and still it doesn't generalize. So can you give us a little bit of an intuition of how do you think this domain adaptation problem can be solved with such an approach? Um, yeah, so the reason why the other approach that I mentioned that only works from the synthetic data, the reason why it works that well is because we hard code a lot of the weights in the network and we only essentially learn very small parts. So there's it's in the couple of thousands of parameters that we're actually learning there. And a lot of the knowledge that we already have is hard coded. And I think the domain uh, translation, you will probably also want to work on networks that you somehow can take into part and modul modularize that you know which part is describing the anatomy, which part is describing the actual image contrast. And then if you bring them together, you know you have a different contrast. So you must alter this part of the network and find, find a mapping there. But a general domain to domain translation is, of course, a really tough problem and there's many approaches out there and there's good reasons why they are out there so the things 
where we are really good at with the known operator learning is where we really have hard knowledge about the actual processing. And this is, of course, the case in imagery construction, in, in the geometry and so on. And I think it can also be the case if you want to include anatomical priors and information like that. But generally in the cognitive tasks, in the perceptual task where we want to recognize something in the image and the detection tasks, we have only very soft prior knowledge. We know how the human brain, well, we know parts of the human brain, how they work. We know that convolutions are a good idea and, and the pooling and so on. But there it's really hard to describe hard facts, hard knowledge about the processing. And I think in all of the perceptual and also maybe in image segmentation, it is rather difficult to get good hard knowledge to be embedded. I see. So in a way, this is quite interesting because if, let's say, if we are looking at the data-centric view to the same problem, we end up with somewhat like these entanglement-based approaches where it disentangle the content and the style, style being the domain information. And then we go ahead and do solve the problem. Whereas the more of the known operator approach is that basically you are somehow already disentangling the domain and style. And you are saying that for the domain, you have the exact knowledge of how to go about doing your business. And for the style part, then we basically are learning from the images itself. But then that's also very interesting. For example, in the more of this upcoming framework of what we call continual learning, uh, where we only are trying to learn as the data shifts over the time. So can you give us again some intuition of how known operator learning can be helpful in the continual learning setup? Well, and to be honest, I'm not sure. Well, the known operator learning is really about, you know, something, you know, some mathematical relation that you can embed into a network. With the continual learning, I think what you need is something like, like network discovery or, or, or module discovery that you somehow figure out which part of your network is responsible for what. And then you keep the knowledge that you want to attain, of course, fixed. And you only adjust the part that you need to adjust to solve the, the shift in the data. But I think that's going to be a hard problem. So yet, I think if we go into this direction, and this probably also is in line with the efforts in meta learning and so on, uh, but I think it's really hard. And if you think about what kind of complex and advanced operations we are fixing in the known operators and how much time it took to discover them for research, I guess there's good reasons why meta-learning and continual learning is a hard problem. <laughs> so. mm, yes, indeed. I think that's uh, quite an advanced thing uh, that still needs maybe some investigation on that point. So maybe to, to go back to the paper itself and its, its content, can you maybe give us a walkthrough of the particular application example about using uh, the Frangi uh, net inside the framework that you propose and how it is integrated and how the data is treated? Yeah, so to be honest, uh, using the Frangi filter there is a bit of a stretch because the Frangi filter is essentially a heuristic. And it's not really hard knowledge, but it's a heuristic that we know of that it works pretty well. So this is why we then, if you look at the filter, the Frangi filter, what you do is a couple of convolutions. Then you do a bit of multi-scale analysis, which is essentially pooling operations. And then you need the eigenvalue computation in order to be able to determine the direction 
of the specific structures and their properties. And it turns out the for the simple two to three dimensional case, there's also a closed form solution for the eigenvalue problem. So you can also make it differentiable. So then we bring essentially these, these steps together and plug it into a network. And what you can do with that is you can then train essentially the filters that process the image and make them, for example, more robust to noise. What we also found is that you can even use that in combination with, for example, a unit. And then you can train a unit that does an image-to-image -image transform that it's still similar to the input. So you want to have a unit that just creates the optimal image for the processing with the Frangi filter. And it turns out that it's an edge-enhanced denoised version of the image. So uh, you train this way a very nice pre-processing filter. And then you just process with the regular Frangi filter that then turns out to give you very nice vessel maps. And what we did in additional experiments that are not in the paper, but um, what we then also later uh, published, is that if you now have this pre-processing network, you find that it's very stable. So you can also use it for vessel maps from the same anatomy on different modalities. So we could demonstrate that what we trained on fundus image data for the eye is also tra transferable for OCT images where we essentially have the, the projection view on OCT. And we could even refine the image and then bring up vessels that are barely visible in the noise of the OCTA, the OCT and geography. And we get very nice vessels reconstructed from the pre-processing filter. And it turns out that it is in line with a high resolution scan that we obtained from repeating the same scan like 10 times and then averaging and doing some super resolution methods. And we could get that from transferring the module without additional need of transfer learning or, or weight refinement. We just took the module as it is and applied it to the OCTA data. So that's very nice. One quick question, because you are talking about uh, these OCT imaging and repeating the OCT imaging. So I'm guessing that these are not on real patients, right? So what sort of data that you, or is it actually on real patients? Yeah, it's on real patients because for OCTA, the contrast comes out of the speckle noise that is in the vessels. So when the, when the blood cells go through the vessels, so you get angiographic images without contrast. But you need to acquire this uh, in vivo. So this is real patient data. And also the fundus data are from, from patient databases. Yeah. Oh, that, that's really a wonderful thing. I didn't expect this is already so advanced that you can do it on real patient data. But that's amazing. So can you give us a little bit of an understanding of the vessel like the, the complexity of the vessel tree and the geometry that is there and whether that has any impact on the performance of such a network or it's kind of like it doesn't care how difficult the geometry is? Um, yeah, so let's put it that way. Uh, it turns out that in, in fundus imaging, the vessel detection isn't so hard. So also if you train a unit, and you can also get already very good results with very few training examples. And you can also degenerate the unit actually quite a bit. So if you just take a, a free uh, magnification stages unit and train it for that task, you're actually taking a network that is way, way too advanced for this purpose. So 
I would say that the reason why we have this success and why it performs well is that the task is not as difficult as a multi-organ segmentation task um, that you would do for, for full body CT. So results are an, a little bit easier to track and to extract. And we see that, that we can also take like units only with one magnification step and they already perform very well on the ophthalmic data. So I think that is also one of the reasons why we have the success with this simple Frankie net in this kind of approach. Mm, I might have a more generic question about the paper itself, because this is something with which I'm struggling myself occasionally. So how do you generate ideas? I think you've mentioned that uh, this idea came more or less by intuition of creating this plug and play framework between traditional and deep learning approaches. But maybe do you have any general advice on how to generate good research ideas? How to generate good research ideas? Well, I think you can, yeah, let's put it that way. Often you are thinking in lines of, of methods that you already know and I think it makes sense to look over, um, you know, think out of the box and also look into other fields, what they're doing, and then get some inspiration and see whether the methods can be applied to your kind of problem. And this really helps. So bringing in new methods from other fields. And well, then of course, the idea has to make sense, right? So if you just randomly combine methods with each other, then uh, it probably will fail. But if you see that, okay, the problem lies, so you have to identify where the problem lies and then which method can help you to make it better. And I think that's uh, one way how you can come up with ideas. I think the, gener the idea generation process is, is complicated enough for it. So <laughs> it's hard to describe it. Maybe you need many different hypotheses, see what kind of works and then narrow it down to the few examples where you really have a good benefit. Well, I mean, depending on the viewpoint, it could be inspiring as well as scary to think that even Andreas Meyer find it a little bit tricky to generate research ideas, for, especially to our young audience who are early in their career of or doing Mikai type research, that it's really, really a daunting, challenging thing, but it's also fun, I'm, I'm guessing, right? It's, it's fun and I particularly like uh, the interaction between different fields and, you know, bringing in ideas, maybe what you heard in math and uh, bringing it to imaging or you hear, hear some ideas from a clinical perspective and then try to find a good way how to model that specific knowledge in terms of computer science. So I think there's so many challenges. So th that's really nice about the medical imaging field. Things around us, so many challenges that need to be tackled that if you have a good understanding of the algorithms, you can come up with ideas to tackle the problem rather quickly. So I think that's really nice about the field. And if you succeed, it's also very rewarding because you see this immediate success with patients, with medical doctors and how it can be applied. So that's also something that is very, very interesting and nice about our field. Yes, I totally agree on that last part that it's like once you have achieved some success you you get an internal sort of satisfaction and reward that you are not doing something i don't know which has very uh, low impact to a small community but it generally feels good to to help other out when they are in need so i guess one 
question, last question towards the paper, and then we'll move on towards the end of the podcast would be basically you already mentioned that reconstruction is probably the most important field where non-operator learning should be approached first. And we have already seen Mikai getting a lot of papers around the idea of doing fast MR reconstruction, right? Because that that has lots of impact in how quickly you can acquire those images where otherwise you simply can't acquire because of the patient's situation. So can you walk us through a bit of, let's say, low-hanging fruits in the MR reconstruction, fast MR reconstruction, where non-operator learning has a lot of possible impacts? Um, so I think quite a few things have already been done in MR imaging. And you can see that some of these ideas were go well before the paper. And now you can say, oh, it's maybe an application of non-operator learning. But the ideas were already out there. So if you think about the variational networks and then learned regularizers for compressed sensing, this is, of course, something that is a very good idea and brings a very fast image reconstruction method. And then now you can also see that there are frameworks out there that essentially make the entire imaging process, the entire sampling and case-based acquisition differentiable, which is a very cool thing. And I've seen the, the first papers like MR0, where they really then try to learn the contrasts from a reference image. So I think this is also something where such ideas can be then deployed up to generating the right sampling trajectory for very fast uh, acquisitions. But also you can incorporate like physical compensation algorithms like for B0 correction and so on. So I think there's there's a lot of things that can be done where you bring together the machine learning and the classical physics in the same framework. Um, looking at our timeline, I would come to the very last final question of today's session. I think we've uh, already had this question a few other sessions. So um, yeah, in a perfect world without any interruptions, where you have unlimited financial resources and everything you need, what uh, would be the research question that you would like to address? Um, I don't think that I would change that much. So because for some reason, I'd like to take the project anyway, where I'm interested in the research question. So I think what's really pressing about our field is that we get good explainable methods and also modular networks that we then also be able to understand because I think this will be also very relevant for you know avoiding biases and avoiding other problems that may emerge in, in medical imaging, like that you don't spot a certain type of tumor anymore because it simply has not been part of the training data. So I think that's a, a very relevant field that we have to go into. And in the long-term perspective, I'm really interested in taking apart networks and really extracting the knowledge that they have learned in order to make it reusable, then this would probably also allow us to cut down from the training observations that we now need millions of annotated samples in order to get an algorithm running. And we very clearly see that for humans, several instances in the order of maybe just one or two instances, we can see that humans are already able to, to grasp the concept and generalize. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in this direction. And yeah, I think this is also where quite a bit of funding will be available in, in the next years to come. It's a relevant problem. The world has seen that it is, 
And I'm very glad that we have many bright researchers in the field that will be working on these topics to advance them step by step. All right. So sort of if I want to summarize your general direction, it would be basically taking the black box neural networks and trying to understand what's going on in it parts, what these networks are learning. This will, of course, make sure these are more explainable. You can detect when biases are there, when it's going to make mistakes. All the silent failure problems can be resolved. But it's also becoming then more explainable, easy to train. And it's basically uh, bringing a lot of these knowledge back to the traditional mathematical approach of uh, pattern recognition and learning. Yeah, and the interesting thing is that in neurobiology, they face very similar problems. When you try to understand the biological neural networks, you exactly face the same problems that we currently have with the deep networks. But the deep networks are, of course, more accessible because we can read everything and we can stop it and and alter the processing much easier than you do in the biological neural network. But I think also the combination with biology and computer science will be very, very fruitful in the future. Absolutely. I think you quite a lot of time alluded to the fact that you always like this interdisciplinary approach of understanding the problem. And this is, again, something that that makes total sense, at least in this particular domain, to bring the neuroscience and neural network somewhat together. So on that note, Thank you so much, Andreas, for your time. It was really a wonderful time we had talking to you. And I hope you are also rejuvenated with the Mikai experience and you are now back again and doing some awesome research in the coming years. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the invitation and this pleasant discussion. It's a real big pleasure to be in your podcast. And yeah, looking forward to talking to you soon again on Mikai and other conferences. Absolutely. Bye-bye. 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 <laughs>